It's a privilege to be here with you again at Metro. We always enjoy coming. While I was <clears throat> singing this morning with you, I was remembering back to the first time we, or I, got to visit here at Metropolitan Baptist Church, and I think it was 1991. Roughly that time, there was a graduation for the Bible College, and it seems we had a service here, and it was a blessing to be here. And then different occasions between, if we have any free service in uh, Sydney when we're speaking here in meetings and there's a service not claimed, I like to sneak in the back door and be a fly on the wall. It's a good place to be. Always faithful preaching from God's Word. We're going to read from two texts this morning, and I think we'll begin with Mark chapter 14, and then we're going to look at John chapter 12. <clears throat> what we may do uh, is uh, put the two together. We don't have our Bibles constructed in a manner where we would have a, a um, harmony of the Gospels. And sometimes it would be handy, we think, if we could just look uh, from column to column to see what's recorded in each of the Gospels. But this morning we're going to read from Mark chapter 14. But let's ask the Lord's help. We thank you, Father, for the momentous occasion. And these times of celebration, we understand, are never times to glory at what men have done. And we thank you for faithful men. We thank you for Brother Matthews. And we thank you, Father, uh, that you brought Brother Shavoni here and his family. And thank you for the ministry of all the dear people that serve the Lord together in this place and from this place to other places. But it is to the glory of God, and we would lift up the name of the Lord this morning. It's our desire to have, in a biblical sense, a passion for Christ. We're not interested in what the world says about passion. They have it all wrong. But we read the scriptures that tell us uh, to love the Lord, and we agree with that, and we aspire to that, and we know it's your work in us to do that at all, even in small measure. And so we're asking as we consider the scriptures this morning that the author of the word of God, the indweller of our hearts by faith in Christ, will be our tutor, our mentor, to guide us into truth, to warm our hearts, to kindle the flame ever brighter, that we would have more desire to please the Savior, just to be in fellowship with our Lord Jesus and with our Heavenly Father. Now teach us, Lord. Bless us and help us. We pray in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. From Mark chapter 14 and verse 1, we read, After two days was the feast of the Passover, and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people, and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence. And have been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. 
Uh, Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought to good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good, but me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. If I could ask you this morning what you think Mary's life verse would be. That's a good query, isn't it? Good thing to consider as we read the Scriptures. I, I have uh, an ever-increasing conviction that great servants of God are ruled by godly biblical convictions. And if I had to identify a verse for Mary, and we don't, I think I would choose Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. It's so interesting to read that in the New Testament because the Lord adds the word strength and He uses the word mind as well. It is as though He was commanding Israel in Deuteronomy and Mary took it up in the earthly ministry of Christ to love the Lord with all that was within her. It was a holy love. This is not a romantic love. This is a worshipful love. And so I want to invite you this morning to consider with me this passage and the one in John chapter 12 as we, as we think about this surprising gift from Mary of Bethany. Where was it, where was it given? And Mark tells us that it was not in Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. For years I thought that's where it was. But Mark tells us in verse 3, chapter 14, verse 3, Three, and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. We know another interesting detail about Simon, and that is that he was Judas Iscariot's father. We usually miss that little detail as we're reading through the Gospels. And I wonder, we have no way to know. Simon certainly was not a leper at this moment. We would say that he was a cured leper, a healed leper, that the Lord Jesus had made well at some point. And if you'll let me suggest this, I wonder if it was at the very beginning of the ministry of Christ, even when Jesus was baptized by John in that time frame, that the Lord healed Simon the leper and his son Judas began to follow the Lord Jesus, sadly, without ever being saved. There are people who follow for many years and never come to faith in Christ. So here we have the feast in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. That's where it was. When was it? We're told that it was six days before the Passover. That's what the Scripture tells us in John chapter 12 and verse 1. If you look there, then Jesus six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. And so that's when it was, six days before the time of his crucifixion, as he sat at meat. So who was there? 
Well, Simon the host was there, Jesus and his disciples, Mary and Martha serving. Lazarus sat at the table with him. That's in John chapter 12 and verse 2. Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And so we have here the honored guest, the Lord Jesus, the host, Simon the leper, Lazarus, a, a notable person, a notable person. You know, I, I can't help commenting on this in passing, that I wonder what was the greatest miracle the Lord Jesus ever performed. Was it the raising of Lazarus? Think about how Lazarus was raised from the grave four days after he died. His sister was sure by now he stinketh. Four days after, after the period when the religious Jews supposed that a person's spirit or soul was no longer in the grave with the body, wrongly thinking, but had departed by now, and after that time limit, the Lord Jesus came and raised him from the dead in the backyard of the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. There's a stone's throw from the Temple Mount. And here the Lord Jesus raises Lazarus. Take away the stone. Where have you laid him? Take away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave wrapped in grave clothes. What a sight to see. Loose him and let him go. And here is Lazarus completely restored to life and health. What an amazing, amazing miracle. Don't you know the word spread like wildfire across the valley into the city and up and down the streets? Lazarus is alive. Lazarus is alive. Lazarus of Bethany is alive. And don't you know the Sadducees, the priests and scribes and lawyers ground their teeth in frustration. Here is this Nazarene they hope to destroy who's just done the most amazing miracle of the 30 or so miracles that we read in the Gospels. What was this remarkable gift that was given by Mary Mark chapter 14, verse 3, let's read it again. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. We read uh, in John chapter 12 and verse 3, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Here we're told that, he, that she wiped his feet. In Mark, it said that she poured it on his head. Both surely would be true. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. We, we, need, to, we need to pause for a moment. I'm, I'm going to call your attention to four key words in the text or that are descriptive of the text, not included in the text. But the first word is the word extravagant. Mary's expression of love to Christ was extravagant. I wonder so many times when I, my feeble love for Christ, I feel that the love, the love of God for sinners is like a towering waterfall. And our response is like a leaky tap. Do you feel that way? I feel that way. Oh, if I could love in measure to him, if I could love him in measure to him as he loves me, oh, if I could only do that. Surely this will be one of the benefits of having a glorified body. 
Uh, some of you, uh, 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 I, ca I can never look at Micah without rejoicing how he sings. And I, I love for Micah to stand up and open his mouth as wide as mine and sing as loud as I. But when we get to heaven, brother, we're going to sing at 10,000 decibels for 50 million years without taking a breath. 25 parts in one song, we're going to sing them all. And a million verses and rejoice to sing another verse. Oh, listen, friends, our love to Christ has never been as great as it should be. Mary's love for Christ is striking in that it's extravagant, extravagant love for Christ. We're told that she brought an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. Uh, we're even told the value, the estimated value. Judas, in his complaint, said it was worth 300 pence. Well, that's 300 denarius, denarii, that's 300 days wages. We're coming close there to a year's salary encapsulated in one gift, a year's salary, all gathered up in one gift to give to the Lord Jesus. What a marvel. If you got the best alabaster you could find, you'd buy it from Egypt. If you bought a box to hold spikenard, you'd buy it from Egypt. That's where the best was quarried. It was polished. It was made into little boxes. And those little boxes could hold, in this case, about 300 grams of spikenard. The nard that's referred to here uh, is told, we're told, uh, in, uh, in the uh, dictionaries and the encyclopedias, was a, a fragrant spice, a class of sweet-smelling, amber-colored essential oil derived from a flowering plant in the honeysuckle family, which grows in the Himalayas, Nepal, China, India. So we're looking at something here. That was not something she bought at Singapore Charlie's down the street. This wasn't something she bought in the throwaway shop. This is something that came from afar that was compacted and compounded and polished and made beautiful. Some have suggested, was this her dowry? Did she hope to bring this to a marriage? And yet she gave it to Christ, the best she had, the ultimate, the extravagant. I went looking just out of curiosity to ask the question, what's the most expensive perfume that exists in the world today? It's a good thing for you to look up. Look up for yourself. The internet, Dr. Google doesn't know everything. Thank the Lord for that. The internet says the most expensive perfume in existence now was compounded about, about two or three years ago. Uh, it's called Shamuk. Now, that's probably not the correct pronunciation, so please come and correct me after. The value at the time two years ago was $1.29 million. That's increased to $1.672 million dollars since it was compounded, unveiled in March of 2019 at the Armani Ballroom of the Burj Khalifa. It's a stunning combination of ingredients that includes Indian agar wood, sandalwood, musk, Turkish rose, and several others. It was designed by Dubai master perfumer Asghar Adam Ali. The packaging is a work of art. I'll just cover this quickly. Featuring a leather display case that stands nearly two meters high and opens to re reveal a bottle adorned with the symbols of the UAE's heritage. 
The base features a trio of golden, uh, uh, gold Arabian thoroughbreds along with three silver clamshells, each housing a real pearl. There are also three gorgeous roses in pink gold and diamond dust and a mini globe with gold continents. Three marble pillars rise from the base to a golden dome atop which a diamond-studded gold falcon sits. Needless to say, there's only bought one bottle of this in existence. But Mary's gift was better. Mary's gift was more extravagant. Our Savior values things differently than men do. A widow brings two tiny copper coins, the smallest permitted to be given in the temple, all her living, and cast it into those trumpet-shaped treasuries there in the temple. One for the priests, one for the poor. And she casts in her two coins. And the Savior says, if you gather up all the coins given by all the rich, by all the noblemen of Israel, gather them up and put them in the scale on one side. And those two little coins on the other side, they far outweigh what was given by the rich men of Israel. Our Savior measures things differently than men do. And when he measured... The gift Mary gave. Oh, my, the extravagance of Mary's love for Christ. I hope you have in your heart a longing, a great longing to love the Lord extravagantly. He is worthy of that love. There are other things we need to consider regarding Mary's gift to the Lord Jesus. I think it was Alexander McLaren that said a couple hundred years ago, said the greater part of a deed, the greater part of a deed is its motive. And the purest motive of all is love for Christ. Ah, we see it here, don't we? The greater part of a deed is its motive. And the purest motive of all is love for Christ. So why was it? What was the motive? What was it that moved her to give such an extravagant gift to the Lord Jesus? I think probably what we should do is we should probably take a large receptacle and label that receptacle worship. But she worshipped the Lord Jesus. Worshipped the Lord Jesus. That's such an interesting Bible word, isn't it? Those of you that have uh, the use of a concordance and you go and look words up in your Bible, know that the word worship, prosecune, is the word for a dog facing its master. You knew that, didn't you? Any of you that are dog lovers, you'll like that. Any of you that are dog haters, well, just let the dog lovers enjoy it, all right? But prosecuni, the idea of a dog facing his master. And so it was with Mary, with her devotion to Christ, her absolute adoration, her admiration, her amazement. There's an element of amazement and adoration of just being completely overwhelmed by the greatness of Christ. 
The Syrophoenician woman had the idea when the Lord Jesus refused her plea to heal her daughter. And she said, but the dogs under the table get the crumbs. She said, basically, the puppies under the table get the crumbs. And the Lord Jesus said, great is thy faith. You know, we would, we would be wise to be willing to be puppies under the table with the Lord. And I, I can tell you, I want to tell you, it's 60 years just gone by since the Lord found me. I don't know that I found him, he found me. But 60 years since he found me. And I can tell you, old friend, that when we come as puppies under the table, he gives us the crumbs and the loaf and the bakery and the wheat fields. He loves to do that. The Syrophoenician woman had it clear in her heart, and I think Mary did as well. There was worship, but worship, the receptacle of worship, contains gratitude, and it, it, it contains love. It contains understanding, insight. It, it contains joy and faith and submission and humility and identification with the one who is worshipped. All of those things are contained in this, and so as we see Mary coming Mary, who's always found at the feet of Jesus. What, a, what an honorable thing to think about Mary. Ever, ever at the feet of Jesus. Ever, ever at the feet of Jesus. The motives of Mary. One of the old commentators that lived about 400 years ago said, doubtless she intended this as a token of her love to Christ, who had given real tokens of his love to her and her family, and thus she studies what she shall render to him in gratitude. A generous love. Oh, it was an extravagant gift. An extravagant gift. I ought to mention to you before we go on to the next point, I ought to mention to you this morning, dear friends, that it was not only what she gave, it was how she gave it. There was that anointing for the head. Did she recognize in the Lord Jesus the anointing that belongs to the Messiah? That's what the word Messiah means. Christ of the New Testament, Messiah of the Old Testament, the word means anointed. Did she recognize that and want to have a part in agreeing with, approving, participating in that anointing that belonged to the Lord Jesus? And then for her to take her glory, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that a woman's hair is her glory. I like to say to my wife when she goes to the hairdresser and gets her hair done up all beautiful and everything, I say the glory of my glory is very glorious. And she took her glory and she prostrated her glory at the feet of the Lord Jesus to use her hair as a means of application of the oil to his feet. Her glory at his feet. What a gift. What a means of showing her love to Christ. Laying out her best, her glory at his feet. Why did she do this? We've thought about several reasons, but we can't pass by the resurrection of Lazarus. So come back with me here to John, and we'll just turn back half a page to the 43rd and 44th verse of chapter 11 and John. 
here the Lord Jesus, after he prays to the Father <clears throat> in verses 41 and 42, in verse 43, and when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Oh, what power there is in the word to raise a man from the dead. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, loose him. Let him go. Who was it that took the cover from his face and looked into the living eyes of a living man who a few moments ago was dead? I asked, I asked a medical doctor who professes to be a Christian. I don't really know where he stands. It's sad. He's a rector of a church, or was. And I asked him, tell me about the about the decay and deterioration of a body when death claims them. And we talked for a few moments about what happens to the blood veins and what happens to the brain and what happens to the stomach and to the joints. And we talked about how so very quickly the body collapses into death. And we would say that can never be reversed. But ah, when the Savior says, Lazarus, come forth, Amen. it's all reversed. And reversed so quickly, there appears to be no, no lapse in time that Lazarus has his mobility and his, and his respiration and his heartbeat and the blood coursing through his veins and his mind is working and his eyes are clear and he comes out of the grave. What marvel that is. I fully expect that Mary and Martha were standing there in joyful amazement. Maybe that's a good definition of worship. Joyful amazement, am amazement and admiration and adoration. Oh, Lazarus is alive and he's restored to life. And so when you come to chapter 12, we understand that extravagant, extravagant gift of Mary to the Lord Jesus. The extravagant gift. But I need to call your attention to another truth, and that is that this gift was fragrant. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Extravagant gifts, extravagant love gifts to Christ are ever so fragrant. They're beautifully fragrant. The odor of genuine love to Christ fills the house. That's what the scripture says about this. It says to us here, and I think we find it uh, in the, in the, uh, in chapter 12 of John. Yes, chapter 12 of John in verse 3, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. The house was filled now, I want you to expand your vision here, because you may, be, you may be reading this and thinking, Simon the leper, Jesus and the twelve disciples, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that's, that's all there was. But that's not true, because we read in Mark that it tells us that there were many Jews there. Where is the verse that says that to us here? 
Have I misled you? I am looking for the verse that talks about the Jews coming. Come on, Bible scholars, help me out. Which one? And John 11, verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But there is a verse here in one of our chapters. Uh, let's see where it is. 12.9 of John. Yes, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there and they came. Not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he, Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Some of you will have had the privilege of going to, I'm going to use the term, third world countries. And if you have, you know what it's like for a missionary and his wife to be forever having to deal with people hanging on the, over the windowsill looking in the house or leaning in the door looking in the house. Because in many nations, they do that very thing. And among the Jews, it was common that if you had a notable guest in your home and you had a feast, why? People would come and they would stand along the wall, three deep, four deep, watching, listening, interested in everything that was being said, peeping in the windows, looking in the door looking between other people's legs to be able to see what was going on. And everybody's interested. And there's some sort of commotion around the table where Jesus reclines. And then they say, what is that? That's nard. That's spike nard. What's happening here? And whispers go back. And people say, Mary just broke this beautiful box of extravagant gifted ointment and she poured it on his head and then she's poured it on his feet and now she's rubbing his feet with her hair oh my goodness wait till I tell grandma about this and everyone was just captivated by this I have to tell you dear friends if there's anything this old world needs at this moment it's the fragrance of extravagant love for Christ. Oh, if there's anything this old world needs at this moment. I sometimes think it's the extract of the blossoms from the tree of life in heaven, uh, made into an essence and poured out in our world when one of God's children loves the Savior extravagantly. We never forget it. Many years ago, someone told me that an offering was taken at a little bush church in Africa to help an evangelist from that church to go to another village. And people brought what they had. Some had eggs, some had veggies, some had fruit. Very few had any cash money to give. And they had baskets at the front of the church down here. And people were putting in their offerings for this brother to take with him to support him. But there was a little boy who had nothing to give but himself. And when the others had returned to their seats, he went and sat in the basket. There's a fragrance about that. There's a fragrance about that. 
Dick McClellan that lives here in Sydney in one of the nursing homes here in Sydney wrote a couple of books about missions in Ethiopia. If you haven't read them, you need to read them. You won't be able to read them without tears. They are absolutely so beautiful. And so many of those accounts, he's not telling about his, his accomplishments. He's telling about the evangelists and pastors. And he tells about one young man who was crippled. And he wanted so badly to go to another village and tell people about Christ. And they said, no, you can't. You can't. You're crippled. You're not capable of doing this. He said, well, I have to. It's God's calling. They said, no, just go through the Bible college and help us in the church here. and That will be enough. And he did for a time. But finally, he said, if you will not send me, yet I must go. And he walked off down the road, the dusty road, with his stick, dragging his crippled foot. And the elders shook their heads and said, oh, we should never let him go. We should never have let him go. And a year went by, maybe two. But when it came time for the annual convention, when the churches would gather and they'd have fellowship together and rejoice in the goodness of God and blessings and people being converted, after the meeting had begun, someone looked down the road and there's a cloud of dust. And as they watch, they're dumbfounded to find that young man dragging his foot, walking with a stick and leading a crowd of people who'd been converted in the village he went to. And the elders had told him, don't go because you know crippled people are shunned and they're looked down on and they're, they're thought to be a pariah. But God had led him to a village that loved crippled people. And his extravagant gift brought fragrance. Extravagant gift. Extravagant and fragrant. Now there's another truth. We must not pass by. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 9, we read here, the Lord Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, O Judas first was despising her gift, and the disciples took up the refrain, How sad! But the Lord Jesus says, here in verse 6, Let her alone, why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. And he goes on to explain that she had an understanding of his coming crucifixion that none of them had. And then in verse 9, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Did you know we're fulfilling prophecy this morning? We didn't set out to do that. But Jesus said, Wherever the gospel is preached, Wherever the story of salvation goes, wherever men speak of the great gift of God in giving his son, oh, that's the extravagant gift. That's the fragrant gift, the sweet-smelling savor. Wherever that story is told, there will be a footnote on the page that tells the story of Mary's extravagant, fragrant gift, which leads us then to say, it's not only extravagant and fragrant, it's permanent. Permanent. This whole world has a lot of religious activities, doesn't it? Many, many, many crazy things that are done in the name of religion and really do not honor the Lord at all. Religion and liturgy, Cossacks and cassocks, I like that phrase, sacraments and candles and incense, all sorts of empty rituals, 
so soon done for God, so soon forgotten, a puff of smoke, an empty ritual, a few careless words and meaningless traditions, but it's what's done out of love for Christ, extravagant, sacrificial love for Christ that really truly lusts, isn't it? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I get such a blessing out of coming across people that do things secretly and silently for the Savior, and no one knows except the Lord. Oh, what rewards we will find in heaven, because that love gift is permanent. So what application can we make of these things? We are among the spectators in Simon's house. I'm standing against the wall watching and sniffing the fragrance of Mary's gift. Extravagant, fragrant, permanent. Her gift is an example to all who know the free pardon of sins through the death of Christ upon the cross. He has given his all for us. And we have an opportunity in this life. Metropolitan Baptist Church has been striving for 49 years to be giving love gifts to Christ. And we're not thinking about the offering, we're thinking about the life. I've never thought of this until just the last few days that that alabaster box is such an object lesson. What a beautiful object lesson this is. Transparent. The stone is a clear stone that you can see through, sometimes with bands of color. And the box is the lesser value. It's what's inside the box that has the great value. That sweet fragrance only obtained through crushing, only obtained through refining, and then sealed in the box, and never finds its greatest value until the box is broken. Oh, Lord, what would happen, Lord, if I were more willing to be broken? A broken and contrite heart is the ultimate sacrifice. When it is poured out to the glory of God, all that expresses our love for Christ. So we've looked at extravagant and fragrant and permanent. Isn't it sad that in the text we find another word? We find the word irritant, extravagant, fragrant, permanent, but it was an irritant to Judas. Covetous, greedy heart had no care for the poor. He bare the bag and stole what was therein. There's a terrible end to Judas because out of what he'd stolen, he bought himself a homestead. And when his remorse was stated before the high priest, I betrayed innocent blood, and he cast down the money, they went out and bought the potter's field. They did not buy his homestead. No, he'd already bought that. And he went out and hanged himself on a weak limb that broke beneath the weight, and he fell, and his bowels burst out. What a wasted life it is to be irritated at the great sacrifice of others for Christ. 
We see that. We see it in religious circles. Sometimes it happens in our church. Why would you go to the mission field? What a waste. What a waste. How foolish are you to think that you would give your life? That's the alabaster box, broken, given to Christ. Fragrant, extravagant, fragrant, permanent. And someone says, no, it's an irritant. J. Hudson Taylor had a brother who said to him, why are you wasting your life going to China? Stay here. Be a doctor in England. Hudson Taylor said, I can't. I have to go. The call of God is upon me. I must go. And if you went and read the Who's Who book, J. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, founder of China Inland Missions, and a good paragraph telling about him. His brother's name was there, just below. I think his name was John. John Taylor, brother of J. Hudson Taylor. And that's all it was said. Irritant? Oh, we dare not be irritated when someone makes that ultimate sacrifice. Lord, here is, here is the perfume of my life. Broken box, here I am. I lay myself at your feet. I approve your anointing. I agree with your call. I identify with the Savior. Here, take me. And that's what God blesses. May, may the Lord do that here in individuals' lives, as well as the church. When you send out missionaries, do you know what you're doing? You're making a, an extravagant, fragrant, permanent sacrifice. And God's blessing is upon it. Father, we pray. Oh, Lord, the fields are ever white. The laborers are always few. How we need in our own hearts to say, Lord, here I am. What will you do with me? Will you break me? Will you use me? May I be somehow a means of glorifying the Savior and provoking others to worship. That's the only permanent memorial there is. All else perishes. So help us in this hour, this fine weekend of joyfulness and gratitude. Help us be, be willing to lay our lives down for you. You tell us, Lord, that true love for God and for others has to do with laying down our lives. And we would do that. But we need you, Lord. Please work in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.